This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited Plus, and thanks to my premium subscribers for your support. On today's premium commercial-free episode, a doctor of conceptual intelligence, a researcher, writer, public speaker, senior political analyst, film director, producer, and foreign policy advisor to the Joint Chiefs of Staff of two Latin American nations, discusses how COVID-19 is being used to transition away from the current planetary economic system towards the post-industrial age, a new economic model based upon artificial intelligence. Daniel Estulin is the author of 16 books, including The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, an international bestseller published in 68 countries and translated into 42 languages. Nominated in 2015 for a Nobel Peace Prize, Daniel is the former host of the highest-rated Spanish-language TV show in the world, Desde la Sombra, on RT Television, formerly Russia Today. His two most recent books are In the Shadows of a Presidency and Global Projects at War, Tectonic Processes of Global Transformation. Daniel Estulin, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm great. Blaze of glory. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Richard. So I've heard you you speak on a number of occasions, obviously, and you talk about something called demand destruction. Is that what we're seeing now with COVID-19? Is that what's behind this? Well, it's one of the elements. It's again, in any in, because COVID-19, coronavirus, uh, corona crisis, corona circus, whatever you want to call it, it's an intelligence operation. It doesn't mean that the CIA or the FBI or the KGB or the Mossad or, or the British intelligence are behind this. It just means that as in any intelligence operation, you have a lot of interests and a lot of people involved, which means that everybody's got to get something out of it. And because intelligence operations cost a lot of money. Now, one of the things we're seeing is, needless to say, demand destruction. Another thing we're seeing is the end of a limit, you know, to a particular model, which is, you know, an infinite growth model based on the breadboard system. Another is we're seeing how the central banking warfare investment model is being changed. Okay, there's also another element of it, which is that change from the fifth to the sixth technological paradigm. We're going from the post-industrial world to trans-industrial world, where the technologies from before are no longer useful, and new technologies such as robotics, artificial intelligence, you know, virtual world, additive technologies become more important. But I, I want to start with uh, one of the key elements, because it is a key element of this whole deep state change from uh, what's known as the central banking warfare model. Let's say that the deep state is in charge of the central banking warfare investment model. So the way it works is that deep state prints money and then people take that paper and give him in essence what he needs to buy up and control the national resources. So the population is dependent on his paper and then he controls all the real stuff. 
also through the military, he can steal whatever he wants. And organized crime is a very important component as well because it can be you know, expensive to drop an army to occupy a place. So if you can take over a place and buy that place with the place's own money, it's much more efficient. And that's where the drug business traditionally comes in because it's basically part of a, uh, of a model for controlling a territory with huge resources you know, in the cheapest way possible. So the central banking warfare model it depends upon financial liquidity. And financial liquidity depends on the rule of law. The minute that the general population stops believing in the rule of law and you depend entirely on force, your price earnings ratio is going to shrink from about 20 to 1 to about 1. So you're talking about a serious financial liquidity problem. So this is one of the key areas we're seeing right now. Because again, if you're going to leave the existing model, because this is a model that's at the end, you know, at the end of the rope, we need a vision of what this new model will look like and ways to prototype it and try it, particularly with young people that tests out a lot of the issues. So to leave something, you need an alternative. And to have an alternative, you have to invent one. And to invent one, you first need to come up with a vision and start prototyping on a decentralized level. And this is what we're seeing right now with coronavirus on many different levels. So are you saying that the the central banking model, they've decided to collapse it on their own? Or is it a case of one deep state attacking another deep state to bring down the system? If you look at the kind of new economic model that, that you know that might work you need first and foremost a sound currency and you need also multiple currencies both local currencies and also global currencies you need sound money because the key to communication between people is that they can communicate effectively with little or no cost to their time and transactions the problem with fiat currencies we're using is is that they're very useful to steal everything but they're not very useful to help you manage a real economy efficiently because there's just so much misinformation and miscommunication in the middle of the manipulated currency. So that's what you need. You need a sound currency. And right now, the central banking warfare model team does not see a way of getting from here to there without promoting an inhuman civilization, including using digital technologies to basically run a mind-controlled chipped slavery population. So if you're going to be an inhuman civilization, you can kiss financial liquidity goodbye. And if you're going to be a human civilization, you need to come up with a new alternative model, which unfortunately at this moment doesn't exist because I've said many times before, what we're seeing today as far as this global collapse has only happened twice in the last 2000 years. The first time between the fourth and the sixth century when the old Roman empire collapsed in 476. So actually, it really collapsed in 550 when the technology, in other words, the aqueduct stopped running. But, and then feudalism, the feudalist model came about. And the second time between the 16th and the 17th centuries when feudalism was replaced uh, by capitalism. So now we're at the end of the capitalist model and we're gonna have to come up with something else. Otherwise, this vacuum is gonna be replaced with a lot of hurt. So the, um, the coronavirus and the, and the pandemic or the, the lockdown rather, how is that being used to transition from the the capitalist system to the 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 next system which is going to be based i guess on artificial intelligence how are they whoever they are using the quarantine to that end you have to understand that this is the end of a model yeah this is the end of globalization because you know globalization died on 9 11 
and then it was officially pronounced dead in Crimea in 2014. What is globalization or globalism? It's, it's, it's free movement of people, of products, of finances, and of services. Today, none of these things no longer exist. It's a world without borders that we are familiar with is now dead. So what we have uh, before is never coming back. Not coming back in two months. It's not coming back in six months. It's not coming back ever. And this collapse we're seeing right now means a loss of everything. Wealth, properties, monies, stock bonds, any kind of investment. It's because it's a systemic collapse. And why is it a systemic collapse and why are we talking about the end of capitalism? Because capitalism is a finite model and needs perpetual expansion. In a capitalist world, the cost of innovation is included in the cost of a product. In other words, for somebody to build Samsung 21 or, or iPhone 16 with all you know, the bells and whistles that you don't have in whatever iPhone you have right now, they need to include the cost of innovation which you're paying for right now. In other words, today's consumer has to pay now for some new stuff that they're going to invent and sell in the future. And so for this reason, capitalism needs expansion of the market and not just you know, expansion part-time, but perpetual expansion. And because the markets are finite, we have come to the limit of that growth. And this is also very simple to explain. Remember that in between you know, the, the Second World War and, and 1991, you had two economic models. You had Western capitalist and you had Soviet socialist. And these two models, they coexisted fairly well between 44 and 91. And then in 91, they merged into one. So basically what had happened was the West, who in the late 1970s was experiencing some serious economic growth, okay, was able to get a new lease of life, first of all, as a result of Reaganomics, and second of all, as a result of the collapse of the Soviet system, because they simply conquered 40% of the global market, because the West capitalists were 60 and Soviet socialists were 40% of the market. But this is only, you know, limited because uh, between 1991 and 2006 or 2007, we've basically arrived at the same point as the West was in the, in, the, in the late 1970s. They reached the limit to this growth. And the 2008 crisis, you know, they call it the subprime. They call it, you know, uh, Fannie Mae and, and, and Freddie Mac, uh, you know, the, the subprime collapse, the Lehman Brothers. It has nothing to do with any of these other elements. It has to do with the first element of this death knell we're seeing right now, the systemic collapse of global proportions. You can't, you know, find your way out of this because this isn't a sector or a section of an economy. It's a global systemic collapse, which means the model that has worked for a certain period of time no longer works, it's now on its deathbed. If you actually look, Richard, at the economic growth in the United States, since 1981, that's Reaganomics, if you, if you take out of the equation all the money they just simply printed out of thin air, not backed by anything at all, the real growth in the United States over the past 40 years is exactly 0%, okay? But the point is that today, it doesn't matter how much money you print, you can't grow exponentially because there's nowhere to grow. Every market has been taken over, which means they need to fold this model and create a new model. And this new model is simply a technological advancement because, again, um, economy and politics has a linear expansion, but technology grows exponentially, which means that anything you grow from here on in, because, again, we've reached the limits to growth, has to be based on a completely different model. Why can't they keep the same thing as they had before? Because you're going to have the same but worse over the next X period of time. So they come to the point where they need to destroy everything. There's a term for it. It's called Greek paradox in, in, in philosophy. 
Okay, which means every technological advancement from before has to be dismantled in order for this new techno paradigm to work. And this techno paradigm does not include human beings, which is one of the biggest problems for the global elite is what to do with this overpopulation, not because there are too many people, but because too many people will not have a job, which means that 7 billion people on the planet Earth need to find something to do. And they don't know what to do with these people. And that's why for them, a global thermonuclear war would have been an amazing solution because that eliminates four or five billion people at the same time, eliminates the need for, you know, for finding something for these people to do. And at the same time, through force mayor, you can wash your hands of all the debt service possibilities and start again. So this is where we're at right now. So are we are we going to transition? Are we going to make it to transition to whatever, you know, is in the future? Or are they are they pushing us towards nuclear war as no nuclear war is out because again one of the things one of the things about uh, killing let, let me tell you a little story I mean it's a story that I invented but it's a very easy story you know that that that, that explains how everything works okay we have a global uh, debt of four quadrillion dollars which is a four and fifteen zeros you can't get rid of this money you can't print your way out of this there's just not enough time. So they figured out that if they can somehow, the global elite, they meaning the global elite, if they can somehow start this thermonuclear war, then they can get rid of all these things that I told you before. So they killed Soleimani in, in Iran, the Iranian general on the 3rd of January, hoping that, you know, the Middle East, which is a powder keg, you have the Israelis and uh, atomic weapons on the one hand, you have Arabs and oil on the other, you know, you can't think of a more, you know, explosive combination. But it was it like what we saw is the fact that nobody wanted the thermonuclear war. So you have the Israelis there, the Americans, the Russians, the Chinese, the Turks, the Iranians, everybody's there. But nobody wanted the third thermonuclear war because it would have destroyed the world for us and also made things very difficult for them. So what was plan B? Plan B was, was coronavirus. Now, how does that work? It's very simple. You have a group of people on the supranational level, because again, like one of the one of the mistakes that that uh, that you know political scientists commit over and over again is when they try to explain events, they explain them on two levels. They explain them in terms of government and in terms of markets, but they forget the third element of the equation, which is the supranational forces, secret societies, private you know organizations. Uh, that basically controlled governments you know, for hundreds of years. And so when you plot this third element, you understand that on a supranational level, you have a group of people. Now, some people may say, well, it's got to be the Bilderberg group. It's not the Bilderberg, but they, that's basically the point. Okay? Things like that. And they decide that the world is at the end of this model, which means for the change, things need to happen. They tried the, you know, the global thermonuclear war attack. It didn't work. So the next thing they decide, we're going to create a virus in a laboratory. And as you create a virus, you also immediately create an antivirus, you know, an antidote, because you can't have a virus without the antidote. It's silly. So, uh, so and then what they need to do is they need for the World Health Organization to call it a pandemic. Because I think it should be obvious to anyone that for the World Health Organization to call something a pandemic, they have to receive a lot of money. Because, again, World Health Organization, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, Federal Reserve, et cetera, et cetera. They're all part of the global liberal banking financier parasitical order that got us to where we are in the first place. And so when you look at it this way, you know, uh, so you have these global power brokers on a supranational level who name most people don't even know. They come to the, the general director of the 
of the World Health Organization and explain to him what I explained to you and your audience. And they say, look, we need to call for, we need for you to call this a pandemic because we need to write off all these debts and responsibilities via force mayor. If the guy says, yes, great. If he says no, then sweeten the pot. They offer him $300 billion or $400 billion, it doesn't matter. It's just paper money they print okay, to fight this pandemic. If he says yes, great. If he says no, then the next step, they offer him Nobel Peace Prize. They offer him $100 million or $200 million to put into his bank account. Again, it doesn't matter. It's just paper money. You know, they, they print it on, on the machine and, and, and they you know, spread it around. If the guy agrees, wonderful. If he doesn't, then they threaten him. They say, look, we need this to be called a force fire. We need you to call this a pandemic because we need to dismantle this order because we're afraid if we don't, the people are gonna realize that we are responsible for what's happening and they're gonna hang us from trees and we can't afford that. So unless you call this a pandemic, we're gonna kill you just as we killed John F. Kennedy, just we, we started 9-11. I mean, we can do that because we control the media and because people are dumb, they'll believe anything that appears in the mainstream press. So the guy understands that unless he does it, they're gonna kill him, put somebody else in his place and he might as well make some money in the process and get a Nobel Peace Prize. So now they have the general director of the World Health Organization, you know, working for them. The next step, you got to convince all of the presidents across the world to do this. Well, that's easy. It's not a conspiracy. You don't need, you know, four people sitting in a dark room, holding hands, staring at a crystal ball. That doesn't, that's not how it works. Because you control the media, which is part of the military industrial complex in the United States, in Spain, in, in Canada, in France, in Italy, all over the world, in England. Okay, and people will believe anything because 90% of the people simply have no capacity to, you know, think abstractly. So whatever is on the cover, that's what it is. And so because you control the media, you can control all the presidents, except for a few like Trump, which is uncontrollable, thank God, and a few others out there. But that's easy. You just make them understand that unless they play along. If they play along, they get the money from the World Health Organization, the United Nations, you know, private organizations, think tanks, foundations, they'll get all kinds of awards. And also, needless to say, they're going to get, you know, and reelected to the position. Can I just pick up on that point? Because you mentioned that Trump isn't playing along. And my sense is that he has been that he knows maybe what's going on, but he's been placed in a box. Uh, So because why would he be deferring to people like Anthony Fauci? There's a, that's a good question. Now, there's a lot of inconsistencies because, again, people look at things, you know, you're with us, you're against us. But you have to understand, as I said before, you have the, you know, the financial, you have the military industrial complex, but you also have the supranational structures. Trump is in the same position that Putin has been in for the past 20 years. When he became president, remember, Richard, the United States bureaucracy is about 5 million strong. Trump can only replace and put his own people, maybe 10, 15, you know, individuals. He can personally pick without anybody's, you know, need for, for congressional support. And the only people that he had working who are really like he could trust at the beginning was his presidency in 2017 were Bannon and, and, and Flynn. And you know what happened to both of them? They were gotten rid of immediately. Right. And everybody else was a traitor. So basically what you're looking at the people, because Trump, again, Trump is not a person. Trump is a project. And he's an alternative project to global liberal banking financier cartel. Now, people are saying it's the same thing, Trump or Clinton. No, it's not, because you have to understand, it doesn't mean that Trump is a good guy or a bad guy. It's irrelevant. Trump is not a person. He represents different interests. In the 2016 elections, the people who were against Trump in the face of Hillary Clinton, who was just, you know, a face of another project, you had 
the intelligence agencies, all of them. You had uh, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, you know, the mainstream media, Washington's bureaucracy. You had uh, um, the the uh, the bankers and the financiers, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, the Rockefellers and Soros's, you know, the Federal Reserve, presidents and prime ministers of all the other countries, NATO alliance. All of them were the enemies of Donald Trump because they all represented this global liberal banking financier project. Is it, the, is, it, is, is it the Rockefellers versus the Rothschilds, basically? Well the, well, the Rockefellers lost, which is one of the reasons why they gave up their positions. I remind you that about, I think it was 2012, that the Rockefellers, 2013, I can't remember the exact date. But anyway, the Rockefellers announced back then, about seven years ago, that they were leaving the oil market. Do you remember that? Uh, anyway, you can, you, can, you, can, you can check it online. When you have two grandmasters playing the game of chess, you don't wait until somebody checkmates you. You give up before that. And the Rockefellers publicly getting out of what's been their business and their cash cow for 150 years is a show that the Rothschilds have won. And that's another, there's another also explanation if you kind of look at some of the alliances. Henry Kissinger, who used to be you know, the, the face and the mouthpiece of the Rockefellers, after that switched positions, and now he represents the Rothschild empire. So again, if you kind of look at Donald Trump, going back to what you said about, about Fauci, Fauci is an operative of World Health Organization, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, all these transnational interests whose ideas to you know, literally continue what they've been doing for the past 70 years. And that's the same position of a people you know, within the American Republican Party. Because if you look at you know, the last elections, all the heavyweights within the Republican Party, they voted for Hillary Clinton, Bush father, Bush son, Romney, John McCain, and, and so many others. Why? Because they don't like Donald Trump because you know, he's, he's mean and nasty and he has funny yellow hair. No, because all of them, it's the entire edifice of global political and financial system is run on a supranational level by the liberal banking financiers. And Trump is dismantling this entire system. And one of the, again, when Trump became president, I talk about this in my book, In the Shadows of the Presidency, uh, which came out three years ago, three and a half years ago. So Trump came in with two clear objectives. One, dismantling of the Bretton Woods economic order, which is the order put together at the end of World War II, based on the expansion of American influence and needless to say US dollar. And second, dismantling of the petrodollar system, which replaced the, uh, the, 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 the uh, goal to, uh, to dollar peg in 71, because again, that's the cornerstone of the liberal banking financial system. And that these two elements are being dismantled as we speak. So I repeat, Trump is not even an American president. He represents a completely different uh, uh, global project because today America continues being run and controlled by the liberal banking financiers. And until Trump wins that one, he's winning, but he hasn't won it yet. You're going to have the deep state, which is you know has infiltrated his government throughout which is why you have Pentagon openly fighting with Trump, which is why the recently failed, you know, failed aborted operation where, you know, there's been an attempt at a coup d'etat, changing government in, in Venezuela, you know, where a group of American, you know, military experts tried to, you know, get into Venezuela from, from Colombia. Well, that was Donald Trump dismantling and for everyone to see, you know, Pentagon and this operation because all of these people, 
they're Trump's enemies. The same can be said, you know, for, for, for Prime Minister of Spain, the same can be said for United Nations, World Health Organization, European Central Bank, World Bank, et cetera, et cetera. They're so, all enemies of Donald Trump. Okay, so where does the Trump project then want to take us versus the liberal banking establishment? Just so I'm clear. Well, again, well, the whole, again, what, what we're seeing right now is we're seeing, like, we've gone through, uh, you can call this world of Westphalia, you know, countries, constitutions, currencies, borders, et cetera, et cetera. That's global 1.0. And that, you know, it's run its course from uh, 1648 when Westphalia was signed to, you know, the late 1960s of the 20th century. Then the next global 2.0 was One World Company Limited. In other words, corporations that have more power than any government on the planet. And that was decided, actually, at the Bilderberg Conference in Montreal, on the outskirts of Quebec, of Montreal and Quebec, uh, in 1968 Bilderberg meeting. And then we, after that, we had Global 3.0, which is post-industrial world, world, you know, IT world, world of banks, technologies, you know, the, the financial center, the speculation, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're in Global 4.0, trans-industrial world, world of robots, additive technologies, transhumanism, et cetera, et cetera. So in this world, what Trump is doing is we're going from the stage of uh, nation states, countries to regionalization of global economies. And in this regionalization of global economies, every block is going to have its own rules and regulations and laws, et cetera, et cetera. And what Trump is doing, he's the face of one of the projects that pushing towards this regionalization of global economies, which is what MAGA, Make America Great Again, is all about. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. So who, as a private citizen, as, you know, one of the... Uh, the masses, whose project do you get behind? That's a very good question. It depends where you're from, because uh, how do you define a global project? Well, because it's not just one. There's several global projects. A global project is defined by three characteristics. One, have an independent conceptual vision of the future. And at this moment, nobody on a national level, no country, I don't care, Canada, United States, whether it's Colombia or France or Germany, none of them have a vision of the future or a model of the future or a compass to define where we are going. Why? Because all of these people for the past three generations, since 1944, have been weaned on this liberal banking financier model, which means that they don't have a language to explain what's going on. By language, I don't mean Richard English or Spanish or or German or Russian. It's a language of an economy because one of the problems with the West is since 1944, there's been a language 
which today is on its deathbed. We in Russia, on the other hand, do have a language. And that language is based on, 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 on crisis theory of Karl Marx and Adam Smith, which we understood a long time ago about the concept of limits to growth. We understood that, which is why in the Soviet Union, we were taught economy, not economics, the pseudoscience that we're taught in the West, because in the West, the idea, again, going back to capitalism and growth, they can't have limits to growth because that's the end of capitalism. And that's something that Karl Marx understood very well. There's going to come a point where we're going to reach a limit because planet Earth is limited space. So in the West, they didn't like that, so they invented another pseudoscience called economics, which eliminated the key element, a key component of, of, you know, of understanding of this crisis theory. And so you're asking me which project we should get behind. The problem with countries is none of them have a language to define what the future looks like. And if you have, it's like, you know, you go into school and you sit down with a counselor and says, so now, Johnny, you finished school. Now, what do you want to be? He says, I don't know. Uh, how, well, uh, where are you going to go? I don't know. How are you going to get there? I don't know. And that's the problem with today's world. Nobody knows where to go or how to get there because everybody keeps saying the same thing. Politicians, economists, Nobel Prize winning economists, all kinds of, you know, political thinkers and hacks. They'll say the same thing. In a few months, we're going to have a V-shaped recovery. Or it's going to be an L-shaped recovery. It's going to be a U-shaped recovery. I don't know where they get these letters from, I guess, from the alphabet. But the point is, everybody, what everybody is saying is, we're going to get back to the way it was. And I'm going to tell you right now, and all the people who are listening to us and who know what I've been doing for the past 20 years, my track record is clear. There's going to be no recovery at all. This is a collapse of Armageddonistic proportions. And there's not one person on the planet Earth who has seen anything like this. The 1929 depression, what really kicked in in 1931, you know, at its peak had 15 million unemployed. There's 42 million, actually 45 million unemployed in America right now. For the first time in history of the United States, more than half of the active population is not working. And this unemployment, if you listen to uh, Bloomberg, if you listen to JP Morgan, if you listen to Wall Street Journal, it's going to go to about 65 million people. There's not enough money on the world to actually print your way out of this. And if you add to that the fact that before the crisis, there's 100 million people who were not working in the United States and they were no, no longer a part of any statistic because they've been out of work for so long. You're looking at astounding number of people who have absolutely nothing to do. So the question is, when people actually get out of this Corona Circus thing, what are they going to do? Because these jobs are not coming back. Because what we're seeing right now, again, it's a change from one techno paradigm to another. And in this new techno paradigm, people become a commodity that the global elite simply can afford. So they have to figure out more than anything else, what are we going to do with 7 billion people who have absolutely nothing to do? And for example, the United Nations Agency, the International Labor Organization, reports that today 1.6 billion jobs have been lost in the global economy. That's half of the global workforce of 3.3 billion people. In other words, today, 1.6 billion I like have no jobs and they're not getting their jobs back because there's no jobs to be had because most sectors are collapsing right in front of us. So 
let's project ahead three months, six months, a year. What are we looking at? Are we talking about mass starvation? Are we talking about civil war? What are we? What are, what are, it, it, you're talking about this and more. Again, you know, I'd like to end this interview on a, on a happy note, not a sour note. Again, the thing is, is that first of all, you know, we as humanity have been around for a very long time. We've gone through some, you know, apocalyptic crisis and we've survived. You know, we survived, you know, the, the bubonic plague, we survived world wars, we survived all kinds of strife, and we're still here. You know, what differentiates us from animals is our divine spark of reason, which no animal has, which helps us people improve the lives of everyone on the planet through the discoveries, you know, key element of, of, of humanity per square kilometer space against nature. That said, it is a very likely possibility that we are going to have a civil war in America. Because again, if you're looking at what's happening right now, America is a house divided on itself. It's not a homogenous country. It's insane to think that it is. You have the police against the Antifa, you have the Antifa against the blacks, you have the blacks against the rednecks, you have the rednecks, you know, plus the, uh, the National Rifle Association against the Hollywood and you know, their, their cohorts, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing is that the civil war in America, it's not a bad thing. I'm not promoting civil war violence, but what it does is it solves a lot of internal problems which will help America grow afterwards. It's like when you come through a very serious disease, be it cancer or whatever. After that, you know, you, you reestablish, if you win this battle against disease, you become stronger. The same thing with COVID-19, the people who are sick, and I'm not denying that this doesn't exist. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a doctor of conceptual intelligence. But what it does mean is that you can have people who are sick from COVID, from, you know, from, from lung cancer, from all kinds of other things, you know, common flu, but it doesn't mean it's a pandemic. Anyway, so the, the point is that you are going to have a civil war in America. Whether it's going to get to the hot phase, I don't know, but you're seeing it right now. Because when you have people, you know, in Michigan storming, armed to the teeth, Okay, the assembly, I mean, you, you, I don't know what you want to call this, but it's, you know, peaceful coexistence, it is not. Also, you know, global hunger, yes, we're definitely going to have global hunger. You're seeing how the, you know, because of global, globalism is dead. Okay, the chains, or the, 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 you know, the, 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 that actually the global system of supply and demand has been broken, which means that people are going to have to start growing their own food. And because nothing is built at a place, it's all built somewhere else. Because it's cheaper, that's what globalization is all about. And for you to establish something, you know, home base, it's going to take time because infrastructure is not built in a day, which means that over the next two or three years, you're going to have a lot of hunger in lots of parts of the world. And you see, for example, in Toronto right now, meat has gone, you know, has gone up in price twice. But that's nothing because the real crisis starts in September. So you very realistically could be looking at, you know, uh, $70, $80 for a pound of meat in Toronto over the next six months and if you're kind of looking what you know what's happening in the states the same thing if you look what's happening in the states you see people you know hundreds of thousands of people across america we have absolutely no savings at all because again more than 60 percent of americans have only two weeks savings and then what maybe they have another two weeks of food and then what and then nothing. Then you have food lines, you have food banks, and you obviously have 350 million who have people who have 350 million gods. So that doesn't look good. So these things need to be solved because literally, unless we come up with a new model, this vacuum is going to be filled with extreme violence globally. 
It also means that in Europe, the European community as an entity is also dead, most likely going to regionalize in regional blocks. That's to be decided. It's you know, it's it's a conversation for another day. Yes, yes. So this is this is what you're looking at globally right now. Where's Canada in this in this state? Well, Canada is part of the British Empire, which means that whatever happens in England is going to happen in Australia, and needless to say, it's going to happen in Canada. Canada has a lot of advantages. It has a lot of land, few people, a lot of natural resources. But again, it's a country divided on itself. If you look at the last elections, uh, you know, there are large swaths of Canada, especially Western Canada, which voted completely 100% against the Prime Minister of Canada, which means they don't recognize his power as the Prime Minister of a country. And there's already a secession movement going on in Western Canada. It's one thing in the 1990s when Quebec tried to secede, and they just papered it over with money. But there's no money now to be had, which means that they can't do it, you know, by giving them money, say, like, just, you know, shut up and go away. So there's a, there's a great chance there's going to be extreme violence because, again, with oil prices at zero as a commodity, and Western Canada lives off of oil and there's nothing else but oil, the problem is, is that you're going to have people going to be starving to death. You have the same thing happening in Quebec, you have the same thing in other provinces, and also you have the same thing internal divisions within the, you know, the future of the Liberal Party in Canada. So again, anywhere you look, you can say the same thing about Latin America. Okay, there's a division between the left and the right, fight for the future, you know, the, the vision of what these countries are going to be like in the future post-crisis. And then again, against the backdrop, global backdrop of this global economic financial collapse as a result of end of a economic model. So, you know, get a popcorn, sit down, you know, sit back. We, you know, we're, into, we're in for a very rough ride over the next six months. Are we going to survive? We're always survive, Richard, because we are humanity. You know, we're indestructible. Do you know what I mean? I mean, they've, 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 they've launched two nuclear weapons or atomic weapons on, on, on Japan. And Japan, for, you know, for, up until recently, was the, the second you know, economy in the world. Yes, we will survive. But what will we look like? That's another question. Definitely, we're going to be looking as humanity very differently five years from now than what we are right now. Because again, remember, this new techno paradigm also leads us to transhumanism, to posthumanism, to men machines, to you know, to robots, to artificial intelligence being imbued with human beings. So, of this whole new set of circumstances that are going to have to be defined not only politically but also from a legal point of view. Because remember. Okay, what's known as the, the, the laws of Murad, basically it's, it's, it's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. These laws have been around since uh, 1762 before Christ. That's 3,800 years. But they based on the concept of interaction between subjects. But today, suddenly objects, which are machines, smart machines, that think becoming subjects, which means you're going to have to rewrite the entire body of human laws and create a new society on so many different levels. And I don't think many people understand that. And again, if you combine it with everything else, you know, political strife, economic strife, end of a model, need to, you know, to, to decide what the future will look like. A lot of things will change over a very short period of time. So all this talk about new normal, they have no idea what this new normal is going to look like. Uh, Daniel, how do people get a copy of Global Projects at War, Tectonic Processes of Global Transformation and In the Shadows of a Presidency? Well, this new book, the, uh, the Global Projects at War, 
Uh, this book is coming out in October with my American publisher, Chris Milligan, Tri-Day Press. It's also coming out simultaneously in other countries in Latin America with, with Random House, for example. Um, my book on Donald Trump, the easiest way is to contact my publisher, Chris Milligan, at Tri-Day Press. is an amazing small publisher, but they do a great job publishing books that nobody else will touch. People can also follow me on my Twitter feed, at Daniel. And um, yeah, we have a lot of webinars going on right now because again, people are totally lost. They need direction, they're confused, they're scared for obvious reasons because the media has done an amazing job. Because what we have seen with coronavirus has been an unprecedented, not like nothing we've ever seen in the history of mankind, okay, propaganda campaign. And people are terrified. And I can tell you on a personal level, my brothers are terrified. You know, they're sitting at home, you know, the masks on, thinking that they're fighting World War III against, you know, this invisible enemy. And they're doing, they're doing their country, you know, making their country proud by sitting at home and staring at the wall. And this is globally the same thing. You know what I mean? So, again, the first thing, if you want to get rid of coronavirus, turn off TV. And remember <laughs> that, in the age, that in the age of insanity, two plus two continues to be four. Daniel, always a pleasure. I hope we can speak again. Likewise, Rich. Anytime. Thank you, sir. Take care. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this Conspiracy Unlimited Plus episode. Joel Skousen, the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, joins me next time, available only to premium subscribers. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 